I recently went back to Indianapolis and was meeting some friends of mine at a restaurant. We were going to have dinner together. And I'm notoriously early for everything. So I showed up early and I was standing out front waiting for my friends to show up. So as I'm standing on the sidewalk, this guy comes walking out of the restaurant. He walks past me and then he stops and turns around. He says, hey, is your name Otis? And I said, yeah, I'm Otis. He said, did you used to live in Broad Ripple Apartments back in 1994? And I said, yeah. And he said, didn't you live there with a whole bunch of other guys? And I said, there were 11 of us who were living in a two-bedroom apartment. And he said, didn't you have a life-size cardboard cutout of Elvis Presley in the front window? And I said, yeah, that was us. We called it the Elvis Mission, home for wayward boys. And he said, man, my friends and I could never understand how you guys live like that. And I really hope things are better for you now. And I kind of smiled and chuckled. I said, to tell you the truth, man, those were some of the best years of my life. I loved every moment of living there in that tiny apartment with 10 of my friends. He seemed a little bit confused, but he said, that's not the point, man. I wanted to tell you. He says, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I got into a fist fight with my girlfriend's ex out in the middle of the street. And you came running out of your apartment and came out and broke it up. You talked me down, got in between us, and uh, you probably saved me from going to jail that night. And I just want you to know how much I really appreciate it. And I stood there looking at him and I said, man, I have no memory of that whatsoever, but it seems completely plausible. It sounds like the sort of thing I probably would have gotten myself involved in at that time. He says, I just hope that things are going well for you. And I wanted to say thanks again. I don't know if the guy listens to this show or not, but if you're out there, I just want you to know I appreciate the story. It put a big smile on my face. And I'm glad that I've lived a life interesting enough to where I don't remember every little skirmish that I got myself in the middle of. But the real moral of this story is good things happen when you show up early. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Jason Ringenberg. Jason is a singer and a songwriter who lives just outside of Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Jason at jasonringenberg.com. Jason has a new record out called Stand Tall, and you can hear it at all the streaming sites and you can buy it from all the places where you buy records and CDs and such. 
I listened to it on my trip up to Indy, and I really enjoyed it. It's everything that you want out of a Jason record. I figure I'll throw out there in case you didn't know that Jason has been on before. If uh, you missed that the first time around or you're new to the show, just go back to episodes 69 and 70, and uh, you'll hear more from Jason. Jason was nice enough to invite me out to his home outside of Nashville. Got a farm, it's a beautiful place. We went in and sat down at his kitchen table, and we were talking about the idea of mentors, and he was nice enough to share a bunch of stories about his old friend, manager, and mentor, Jack Emerson. And I've heard a lot of people around Nashville talk about Jack. I'd never met him, but he seemed like a great guy. But I really enjoyed spending time with Jason, as always, and I feel good about this episode. Here's Jason Ringenberg. When I think of, of mentoring, the first person, the most important person in my life, and it turned out to be in a lot of people's lives in Nashville American music, was Jack Emerson. I moved to town July 4th, 1981, to Nashville, and I went to a little club called Springwater there off West End Street. When I'd got to Nashville, I was really surprised that, you know, I'd heard this was the music city mecca. And I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more going on in the clubs and there wasn't that much happening, especially in terms of sort of modern punk rock and things like that. So I heard about this little place called Springwater and went down there and it was sort of a magical experience because there was a lot of sort of punk rock people hanging out. There's this little punk rock band playing called No Art, uh, Barry Feltz's band. I started talking to this fellow named Jack Emerson and turns out he was a college student at Vanderbilt, but he wanted to be a music, he wanted to change American music. He said that that night. He said, I'm, I, I want to change the way music works. And um, I told him my vision for music, you know, wanted to sort of make a high energy roots rock sort of country, punk rock, you know, rockabilly kind of thing. And um, he was immediately into it. He, he said, yeah, I'll, I want to in on this. And I think I can help do this. He played a little bit of bass, not much, but a little bit of bass. Uh, but he was going to college at Vanderbilt. But he was on the concert committee at Vanderbilt. So right off the bat, he said, if we can form a little band, I can get gigs, like, way better than just playing down on Broadway. So we did. He had a few friends, and we made a little band. Barry Feltz was on drums, actually, the singer for No Art, and, um, who I met that night. And then uh, a law student at Vanderbilt, Will... Tomlinson was on guitar. Jack was on bass. And the first gig Jack gets us was open for R.E.M. at Cantrell's because he was friends with R.E.M. They were a club band at the time, but they were starting to work, you know, starting to make some noise among the American underground. And then the second gig Jack got was open for Carl Perkins, you know, <laughs> at Langford Auditorium in, in Nashville. And um, so Jack was just that kind of guy. He was so connected and so, so intuitive he knew he wasn't going to be the bass player. He wasn't a musician. He knew it, you know. Through those three shows, and I met Jeff and uh, Johnson, and then, then he brought Warner in, and then Warner brought Perry in, and then it took off. But Jack moved over to managing the band then and being the Praxis Records 
die. He was practicing strength towards the tool. Well, his dad was a very successful lawyer. In fact, his dad had once ran for governor of Tennessee. So Jack had a good had good genes for business. You know, who was in his in his DNA. Uh, but musically speaking, he had done one record. You know, he was a DJ, of course, at, the, at WRVU, the college radio station. And he put out a record called The Other Side of Nashville, which was sort of the punk rock side of Nashville, new wave side of Nashville. And then that's that's when we and me and him met, right right when that record was coming out. From that point on, that he just devoted the next two or three years to Jason and the Nashville Scorchers. That's what he did. He whatever we needed, he did. He'd get us. You know, he'd help co-sign the loan to get a van and, you know, figure out stuff that, golly, got these records out for, you know, Reckless Country Soul and then Fervor. About 83, he made the move from being a record company to managing, and that's when he started his management company. He became a management company. Praxis became a management company. Andy McLennan joined and Kay Clary and Lori George, Meg Jafrida, Kim Bowie, uh, Wayne Halper, all these folks that have become major players in the business started at Praxis in 1983 and four. So then Jack moved over to managing us, and that's you know all public knowledge. There he was, you know, he got us the deal with Capital, and he got the questioners their deal with with Arista, and he got Tim Crackle a deal, and he got of course the Georgia Satellites. He made Georgia Satellites international stars. So that's the business side of Jack. But the reason I'm going to talk about Jack today is not all that, really. It's not about what Jack did for people's careers. You know, he he did establish it. Steve Earle, uh, John Hyatt. I mean, golly, he worked with all those people and got them going, helped get them going. But what Jack did was uh, much more profound. He was sort of that, the you know, he was sort of the character from It's a Wonderful Life. Um, the music business, is, as I'm sure you you could relate Otis at the time was so decadent, early eighties, God, cocaine everywhere, you know, hard drugs and you know, alcoholism, terrible, just all kinds of decadent, dark trips people were on and it was expected, you know, it was the norm. Celebrated. It was celebrated. That's the word. It was celebrated. Right. And, um, Jack was completely different. He, you know, he'd have, he'd have fun. He wasn't sort of, sort of, you know, Puritan, you know, teetotaler, but with Jack, it was always about what does your music mean to your fans? That's what he was 100% into. And that went ran counterintuitive to the prevailing attitude is what does my music mean to me at the time? And by doing drugs and being decadent and stuff, I'm feeding my muse. That was the prevailing attitude. To Jack, that was all baloney. He wasn't, he said that was just completely. That, that was just idiocy in his mind. Jack was like, make your music that's going to mean something to somebody else, not just yourself. You know, this isn't about tripping your trigger when you walk on stage or sing a song or record a song or write a song. It's about making connections with other people. He never wavered from that. He always, he wasn't a guy that would bust people, but he, he sort of led by example. And that example invaluable for me you know because you know i've never had commercial success you know so it wasn't the money that kept me in it 
you know, I'm not a brilliant musician really to start, to start with, so it's not the sort of um, feeding this in unquenchably hungry muse. It was what the music means to people. You know, that's what's kept me in it. And I learned that from Jack Emerson. Well, he had the punk rock, eth punk rock ethos, Jack did. And that was, you know, do it yourself if you can't get somebody else to do it and pay for it. <laughs> do it yourself. You know, and, um, so he had that. Um, but he, yeah, he had solid parents, no doubt. Like I said, his dad was a, he ran for governor once, a Democratic ticket. Um, and his mom was just a lovely lady. His sisters were great people. I never really knew Jack to ever be mean. He, he didn't have a mean bone in his body. He Very unusual, you know, for, for once again, for early 80s music business people. It was a really cutthroat. I think Jack knew right off the bat that he'd have to go to Los Angeles and New York to break his bands. The country music establishment in those days wasn't the same as it is now, you know. There wasn't a music industry in Nashville that did anything but country music. It just was out of so out of the out of the norm. So Jack did go to Los Angeles and New York and he sent all his bands Whatever band he was dealing with in the early to mid-80s into the late 80s, he would always he'd get them on the road somehow and get them to New York to play and Los Angeles to play and to meet the people there. We had ICM out of New York for our booking agency, Capital out of Los Angeles for our record companies. Our publicist was out of New York. So we, we recorded in Nashville, but as far as that was, the rest of it was concerned, our business was all done outside of Nashville. We had to pretty much. There just wasn't. There just wasn't what is now. Nashville now is more important than L.A. for rock and roll, you know. <laughs> Whereas that was just that was just not not the case then. In L.A. though, there was a long tradition of country rock, so we did plug into that. Our first tour, we played uh, the Palomino Club, and uh, you know that was gee, Manetli, I mean Graham Parsons, and all the way back to those people came out of the Palomino Club. So we were able to plug into that, and you know, Lone, Lone Justice was already happening there. Um, the blasters were already swinging, you know, Joey Lee was doing a lot of business there. Uh, Dwight was starting to, to make inroads in, in Southern California. So it was, it was easier there for us to get attention. New York, we cracked New York early. We were able to do numbers in New York in the clubs right off the bat, right after the first couple shows, but we were never able to get record contracts out of New York. When we went to LA at the end of 83, uh, that's when it clicked. It just took one tour and we got a record contract. And we had a choice of five different labels, all of them majors. We had a choice of five labels in one week tour. Now we had the record out. Fervor was out and it got in Rolling Stone that week. And we had a lot on our favor. Everything kind of came together. But L.A. was a very fervent, very fertile ground for the band. And did big numbers. You know, we were playing the Palace by the end of the 80s in, in Los Angeles. Was Jack coming with you on the road to those particular? Was he in the band with you guys? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Jack Emerson, he was a bit, I wouldn't say finicky, and he wasn't fussy, but he was a bit fragile. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> he, you know, he was always trying the new health kick and trying all these different diets and things. And he did, you know, I should explain, he had real health issues. He had, he had fought cancer as a child and things like that. And, he had a lot of organs he didn't even have in his body anymore. So he had to really watch it. So he wasn't able to go out on the road to this. He went one time to Europe, our first or second tour of Europe. 
And I think he hated every minute of it, really. I think. <laughs> I mean, we'd be traveling through the Alps in this Skyliner tour bus, you know, just digging it, and he was, you know, in the back sick, and you know, it's just that was poor Jack. He, he he wasn't able. He fought health all his life. The fact that he hated being in a van in Europe makes me think he's a very intelligent man. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, Otis. This is true. This is true. Well, he was always on the edge. You know, Jack was always... He never really relaxed when there was music happening. He always, his leg was always twitching. He always, his leg was always twitching, and he was always sort of rubbing his hands together and trying to think, did the guest list, did that get to the right person? And, you know, it's, you know, are you guys doing the right set? What are you wearing tonight? And think, you know, he would, he would worry about everything. Literally everything Jack worried about, which all those things needed worrying about for sure. So Jack would always try to find common ground with people though. He, he wasn't, I've got a hit record and I'm going to tell you how it's done kind of guy. Jack wasn't that way. He was, you know, he would try to find common ground with folks, whether that was, the head of Arista Records, or wherever that was the guy that was pumping his gas, he would try to find some sort of place to meet and to, to share some communal space. He was always saying, uh, you know, quoting all those great quotes, you know, it doesn't kill me, makes me stronger, and things like that. He was just always saying that. And when you're, that's, you know, now, of course, it's not a, as big a deal, but when you're 21, you know, and someone around you saying that, it sinks in, you know. Jack was that way. He was always taking chances. I mean, he quit. He quit Vanderbilt for rock and roll. He quit. You know, he quit. I think it was a junior year when he quit. So he quit a, you know, quit a Vanderbilt education. <laughs> it might you know. nullify my other comment about him being wise for not wanting to be in a band. <laughs> <laughs> Praxis and the Scorchers and all the Praxis bands that were coming out, of course, the Satellites, of course, and Hyatt and Steve Earl after that. I mean, they made so much noise on Music Row. It was, it was so alien to what they were doing, so foreign, but so exciting. I mean, they were, those folks were so interested in what Jack was doing. But at the same point, none of them were also offering to write checks to Jack either. You know, they were a little suspicious that... This was solid, you know. Um, so that was that was going on. But at any show, you could you would see at any of the Praxis shows, the big Scorcher shows, you know, things that were happening around around us and around Praxis. There there would be industry people, country music people, you know, hanging out. And, but like I said, they weren't they weren't at the backstage ready to write the checks either. <laughs> you know, they were they were really really curious there's so many people i have met in nashville who were in the crowd for those uh scorcher shows around this time and it had an effect on them in a positive way we meet plenty of people in places like nashville who want to be on your good side in case something good ever happens but <laughs> they don't seem to want to do any heavy lifting to make anything happen <laughs> There's plenty of those people, but I'm not talking about those people. There are people who legitimately love music who are in those crowds and uh, were probably seeing a different Nashville right before their very eyes and were enjoying every bit of it. Oh, yeah. There was so many cool people that were so happy to see 
something besides music girl country coming out. And you got to remember, I mean, country music in the early eighties was horrid. You know, I mean, it was horrible. There was just, uh, awful. And so in comes all this new blood that didn't have anything to do with that. Didn't share anything with those people, you know, I mean, we would, we shared ground with, you know, Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and folks like that, but we didn't share any ground with Lee Greenwood or Barbara Mandrell or any of the stuff that was really happening in the early 80s in Nashville. So all the folks that weren't into that stuff were just, oh, they were so exciting to be around. And a lot of folks pitched in, you know, and, and sort of did what they could, you know. I hate to name names because I'll forget a bunch of them, but Steve West, for example, was doing shows, you know, promoting shows and bringing bands in at 328 and other, other venues. And like I said, all those press, press, practice people, Grace Reinbolt was doing some really cool stuff. And, you know, there was just a lot of, a lot of people really trying to make rock and roll happen. Gary Valletri from Bug, as you probably knew him, um, you know, Marie Arsenal became my manager or booking agent later in life. And a lot of those folks just, they were f- profoundly affected and they took it really personally. The excitement that was happening in the mid eighties you know, to the music, to the rock and roll music community. How did it come to change it or dropping Nashville out of the Nashville Scorchers name. How did that happen? And what was the decision? What was the thinking behind that? Well, we made a lot of mistakes back yonder. Every band does. But that was a humdinger of a mistake. <laughs> it was a horrible mistake looking back. And amazingly, we didn't think at all about it at the time. Um, it was a suggestion. I'd hate to say this. It's embarrassing, actually. But EMI suggested it. Capital suggested it. They said they're gonna. Th- everybody's gonna think you're a country band, with Nashville in the name, and <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's shameful that we didn't think about that more and discuss it more. I don't even remember us discussing it. We were like, oh, oh okay, you know, on to the next thing we're doing, you know, yeah. and we didn't even think about it. It was the coolest name, Jason and the Nashville Scorchers. I mean, that's just bad. That's cool, you know. And we should have kept it, yeah. To this day, we all we all regret it. Really? Yeah, to this day. I, I think in the moment, I would have saw what they were saying just like you did and thought, yeah, okay. And looking back, I never knew whether you regretted it or thought anything of it at all. Yeah, I've regretted it always. Always have regretted it. No, no question about it. Uh, just it was... I mean, me and Jack came up with that name. You know, we... We were just in his little apartment there by Vanderbilt, and what's the name? And I wanted Jason and the Somethings because I was tired of bands breaking up. So I figured if Jason and the Something was going on, I have a better chance of keeping a band together. And so we and we wanted something kind of radical and kind of cool sounding and a little dangerous. And and we tried Jason and the Scooters first, and that, uh, <laughs> and then. In those days, there was a shoe called the Creepers. Do you remember that? The yeah. Creepers, they were a rockabilly shoe. Yeah. And um, an English fad thing. And how about Jason and the Creepers? And then it was, well, that's so English sounding. What if we make Jason and the Nashville Creepers? 
And so we thought about that for a bit. This all didn't take but 10 minutes. And then Jack started, I'm just going to thumb through the dictionary. And he's summoned through the dictionary and S and, huh, Jason and the Nashville Scorchers. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's the name right there. That's what he called it. Jason and the Nashville Scorchers. That works. Did Jack have any thoughts about when EMI suggested to get rid of the name, or did he just not say anything at all? Jack actually was somewhat for it, yeah. yeah. I mean, EMI was promising us the moon in those days. I mean, it was a big contract. This was not a little indie kind of thing, you know. This was a contract they were giving their major stars, you know, a big deal. And, you know, so, yeah, well, you guys want, you know, you're right, the checks, you're right. Yeah, we'll drop one word for a name. No big deal. You know. What do you think if you would have said no? What do you think would have been the next? Uh, would you be, were you? Hmm, good question. If I was in that situation, I would be thinking, man, maybe they'll think I won't play ball. And then they're not as excited about the project. Or, but I don't know that that's the case, but that's probably where my brain would be as a, as a kid. Yeah, certainly there's a justification for that. There, that's a, a real thought, and maybe they would have. It's hard to say. Um, we were already so out there anyway. I mean, it was a real rock and roll band, you know. It was cheese. It was, you know, there were just some things you couldn't take the Scorchers to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, they might have, yeah, they might have balked a bit. And I don't remember if they suggested it before or after the deal was signed. I don't remember that. Because it happened so fast. I mean, my God, we did we did that tour when we played the Palomino Club in mid-December, early to mid-December, and had a new video out on MTV and a new track on the record and a completely remixed record and a completely different artwork with a new t name of the band by mid-January. All that happened in six weeks. Wow. Single out in Europe. Single to radio in America. Wow. It happened so incredibly fast. I, I don't, looking back, I don't remember what was the driving force and hurrying things as much as we did. But everyone was, yeah, we got to get this. Come on, we got to do it. We got to do it. And we did it. This happened really fast. We couldn't even order CDs now and get right. it that fast. Right. I don't know how we did it then, especially in the days of not internet communication. I don't know how that happened so quickly. But yeah, we made it work. It was exciting, heady times, boy. It was a wonderful time of my life. There's a guy somewhere who came up with the idea to drop Nashville from it at EMI, who's went on the rest of his life never even thinking about it. Right. Meanwhile, you guys, it's bugged you, though. That's life lessons, I guess. Well, that's a good point. I think about that a lot because you work with so many people, as you know, in the business all the time. And someone will say, no, you need to switch the sequence of that record, you know, change this song to that song or whatever. And that person's gone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they're gone. We don't even remember what their name is now. But I live and you live with those decisions that we make that these folks make. And they don't really understand those folks that, you know, it's they're making they're involved in, you know, dozens of records every year. And you're involved in one record for the rest of your life. You know that you're dealing with on that on that that photo that goes on the front of the cover or whatever you're doing. It's on your merch table. For it's the on your merch your table for the rest of your life. So yeah, it, it's any advice to art, artists out there. 
don't be afraid to stick up for little stuff like that, you know, because those little things will mean a lot more to you as you get older. Yeah. You'll you'll remember them and think that doesn't make any difference. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't really make it makes a difference only to me. So let's just do it my way. You know, it's I'm the only person that's going to matter to. 20 years from now. So. the world's foremost expert on what a Jason record should be. <laughs> this is the truth. This is the truth. We never had a breakup. There was never a, uh, a go to hell moment. <laughs> you know, Not, nothing like that ever happened. But the band broke up. I mean, in 89, the end of 89, the band broke up, period. We didn't just take a hiatus. We broke up. I mean, the whole thing. We sold our road cases. And, you know, yeah, serious. You know, <laughs> we sold the road cases. Quit, quit paying health insurance to us, and you know, it was yeah. We broke up. So at that point, there wasn't any sort of relationships other than some of the friendships that lasted. Jack understood. Yeah, he was through too. I think with it, very frustrated. I mean, the band in 89 and 90 was not the same thing that happened in the 90s. It was it was like we were failures. I mean, there wasn't any other evidence that all that's all we were was failures, that we had failed. There wasn't any, you know, later on it was like, oh, we became these, I don't know, pioneers and all this stuff, you know, and getting got all this credit for what happened later. But in those days, so we, you know, every single one of us, we thought we'd failed. That's how we looked at it. So yeah, we just we just broke up. Um, Warner was the first one to sort of yeah, I'm out. I can't do this. And but there was no oh come on Warner, we can you know none of that happened by me or Jack or Perry. Perry was probably the most pro going on with it after we lost the A and M deal. But you know he by that time he was sick and you know with diabetes and it was it was just time let it go. We had big goals, big dreams for Jason and the Scorchers. Um, we really thought we were going to be a huge act. You know, we were going to be like the, the Who from Tennessee. <laughs> you know, that's how we kind of thought it was going to happen. And there was evidence that it was going to, you know, at, at certain times. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, dashed expectations, failed expectations. When you have those kind of expectations, you're going to be unhappy. There's no, no getting around it. Because, you know, chances are it's not going to happen, and it didn't. So, yeah, you know, it's all that stuff contributed. It's amazing there wasn't more serious. We were we were blessed that there wasn't serious arguing. There was some, but not bad, not, not terrible name-calling and putting each other down in the press and things like that. To this day, there's never been much of that with the, with the Scorchers. Jack, I think he, it wasn't a one thing with Jack. I think his body just kind of gave up. He had a heart attack of sorts, from what I understand. But he was in always fighting health all his life. But in the later years, it was, uh, you know, it, he, it was a daily thing for him. Um, and I found out, you know, that he passed at a show. I was, I was doing a show at uh, Radio Cafe in East Nashville. Solo show. And, uh, you know, someone just walked up and told me, you know, really sorry what happened. I said, what happened? I didn't know. 
know, so right there before I walked on stage. Yeah. It was it was a tough second set. <laughs> I can tell you that. A really tough second set. That's it. I found out Perry Bags died the same thing. Between sets in London. Yeah. I was doing a London show. And the same thing. I'm really sorry about Perry. I said, what? what? <laughs> and then five minutes later, I had to go on stage. So. I was playing at Greystones in Sheffield when I found out about Perry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I didn't know him, and it hit me in the gut. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. I can't imagine. Did you get to go to Jack's funeral? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a wonderful experience. They had it at the Bell Court. And it wasn't really a funeral. It was more like a... Jack was a Christian. He was a strong Christian, solid, solid conservative Christian. But his funeral was really open and, and sort of non-denominational. Um, it was just celebrated his life and his music and, and his faith, too. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Presbyterian or anything like that. It was just his own... Andy McLennan did it. He, he officiated it. Did an amazing job. But yeah, all of his friends came out, and it was, Bill Court was packed, you know. His, his reach. You know. It's funny, because for me, the Jack Emerson connection is all personal. I, I really don't think of himself in the professional light. For me, Jack, it was a real personal thing. It was, oh, Jack's the guy that, Jack is the reason I'm in the business, yeah, but Jack's also the reason that I think I have my head on straight about why I'm in the business. You know, that's that's what Jack Emerson gifted to me. You know, it was, I think, a, a solid reason to be playing music. And that's, that's what he did. I appreciate you inviting me out here, man. Beautiful having you on here. It's always a pleasure, Otis, no doubt. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Jason for inviting me over to his house outside of Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Jason at jasonringenberg.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe, and you'll get a brand-new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.